As you grab your seats, I just would like to encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, or maybe uh, you like to read on your phone, uh, smart devices, you could turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy is way back in the back of the Bible. Your pastor uses the table of contents, so you can too. Uh, But it's way back in the back, a little short letter that Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, and I'd love for you to see it. 1 Timothy chapter 1. As you turn there, I just want to extend a word of hospitality again. Uh, I'm glad you're here today. My name is John Wayne McMahon. I'm one of the pastors here at Marvin. If you're new or a guest or maybe checking us out online, uh, we don't take it for granted that you would be with us. And so I'm grateful for you. I'm, I'm thankful anytime that we can gather, especially in light of what's going on around the world. Let's not take this for granted. It's good for us to worship Uh, together. If you're just being here for the first time, we're actually wrapping up a sermon series called Canceled. Uh, A lot of people have thought that we were canceling this service. We're not. Uh, This is a a Christian response. What does it look like for us to interact with cancel culture that's out in the world? What's our role in it? And some of us think, I don't even know what cancel culture is. Well, I promise we participate in it in different ways, uh, whether we know it or not. And so we've been engaging in that a little bit. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about how do we get past the past? What's our Christian response to get past the past, and how do we uh, let others give space to get past the past as well? And so to do that, uh, there's no better place to land than, I think, Paul, someone we see has to get past a, an interesting past, uh, the Apostle Paul. And he writes to Timothy, and he shares these words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. For that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Let's pray together. God, I give you thanks again for your presence with us, and I pray and ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of this scripture, your holy word. Where we are empty, would you fill us? Where we are weak, would you strengthen us? Where we are wrong, would you correct us? And would you send us out out once more? God, I pray for myself that you'd speak through me or in spite of me, but may it be your message that's delivered. We love you and trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Let all God's people say, amen. Well, if you've been with me for any amount of time, I've shared with you different parts of my colorful story, particularly coming to faith. Uh, It was a bumpy road to get to this place of following Christ. And I remember um, a, a certain point of this season of life for me when I was just becoming a Christian this week because I was writing a letter to another friend that was getting ready to go on a spiritual retreat. And this retreat's called the Walk to Emmaus. And on this retreat, they, they get away for several days and experience and learn about how God's love works in their life. But there's also an opportunity for them to respond to that very thing. And, and so I was writing a letter to encourage this person. And it made me remember when I was on this walk. And I went on this retreat years ago. I was a brand new Christian. But I was in this place where I, I understood that I was forgiven, that Jesus loved me, and I'd responded in gra- to that grace. But I was in this place when I went on this retreat of discerning a call into ministry. And so I get to this retreat, which I happened to go on one where everyone was 50 years my elder. 
And I'm sitting here like, what am I doing here? Like, what is this thing? And, uh, and I was just trying to figure things out. And throughout the weekend, I started to hear very loudly um, that I was being drawn into ministry. But I, the biggest hangup for me is I couldn't let go of these things that were in my past. I felt like there was no way that all of this stuff I did back here um, would be okay for this journey that I was about to go on to be a part of the church. I'm telling the Lord, like, I don't know, I don't know the rules. I don't play by the rules. I haven't heard the rules right. I've experienced these different things. I was in a jail cell not too long ago. I was on probation with the ankle bracelet not very long ago. Lord, how are you going to call me to these people and to be in pastoral ministry? And I just kept wrestling with this over and over again. And then I received a letter, much like the one I wrote to my friend that said some things about me that I couldn't see in myself. And one of the things I realized it was in that letter was this person and the collective church that had come around me could see God's potential in me that I couldn't recognize. They could see how the past wasn't going to disqualify me, but it might be a light to shine into the future. Today, we're going to talk about what it means to get past the past, not forget it, but to get past it in a way so that we might participate in what God's doing in our lives. What does it look like to know that Jesus forgives us, but also to see that in that forgiveness, there's restoration and mission and calling into the future. Well, part three of this cancel culture series, we've been exploring the question of what is the Christian response to cancel culture? And I've, I've defined it in a few ways, but I offer another one for you today. Cancel culture is when an individual entity or brand violates a social boundary, whether that's defined or not, and is decredited and removed from public legitimacy and participation. And the one-liner I've offered these weeks is Christians shouldn't see shame as a sport. I think it's antithetical for us to see canceling people at least like we should not be canceling people if we believe in the redemption of Jesus Christ. And so each week we've gone through these three things. Week one, we want accountability for others, but usually we want amnesty for ourselves. So we started with accountability. Week two, Jesus forgives, but sometimes people need time, right? We've experienced that. And then this week, we're gonna talk about the Jesus that offers radical forgiveness and inspires radical obedience. We see that in the life of Paul. Questions we ask today is how do we come back from failure? Should others be given the right to come back from failure? Hey, inside answer, yes. And how much room should they have to come back from failure? Can God really use me, us, to come back from the past? Paul has a comeback story for the ages. That's why I love Paul. And you're going to see it, I think, in another light even today. Reminder from last week, we love our VBS heroes of the Bible. And we kind of gloss over the fact that they're all a hot mess. Dumpster fires, all of them. They're just conflicted, interesting characters. And I don't know if we gloss over their faults because it makes us feel better about ourselves. I don't know why, but we miss it. And we actually miss the redemptive power of God in their lives when we gloss over the messiness. And so I want you to see it in Paul. Paul's no exception. In our passage, he says this, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. 
What we need to know about Paul is that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was one of the big heroes of the Jewish faith. He says as much in Philippians 3. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if, any, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in their flesh or in themselves, I have more. For a Pharisee who was circumcised on the eighth day, he was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, he was persecuting the people that were getting in the way of his faith. He was going after those people and getting rid of them. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Not like kind of a sinner, but striving to never make a mistake. This is Paul, but he was also brutal. He says it in 1 Corinthians 15, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the people following Jesus, the church of God. And in Galatians, he says, for you have heard of my previous ways of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I don't know what you messed up on today, this week, but probably not trying to destroy Jesus's church. Likely, right? I hope not. Come see me afterwards if that's the case. Of course, think about the first time we meet Paul in scripture and we call him Saul at this point is in Acts for stoning the first Christian martyr, Stephen in Acts seven through eight. And check out what is said about Saul or Paul in Acts eight. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Y'all, he was not just violent or some criminal of some kind. His crime and his violence was actually thrown at people for following Jesus and only for that reason. So hear me, church, whatever you've done in the past, Paul, who is used to go to the nations, was one where he took joy in beating up, killing, and throwing in prison those that were following Jesus only because they were following Jesus. That's Paul's background. And this is who God calls to actually change the world. And while on his way to find more Christians to bully or hurt or maybe kill, this is what happens in Acts 9. He asked the church for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. And then later Jesus commissions Paul in Acts 9, 15 and 16. The Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. A couple of things I want you to see right here at the front from Paul and the story of Saul turning to Paul. The first thing is God often chooses unlikely people because those are the people that will reveal God to the world. God often chooses the least likely. 
Because it would be easy for God to send the person that would be accepted in the towns that he would go to. It would be easy for God to choose the person that believed in all of his skills and his entrepreneurial whatever and his ability to convince people to do this or that. What was hard was that he chose the person that was actually known for killing the people that he was gonna be sent to. Why? Because in a surrendered Paul's life, they actually wouldn't see Paul, they would see God. Because the only way this is possible is with God's redemption. And so oftentimes God uses those folks that you would never expect. Why? Because his very light and his very power and his very strength shines through those persons, right? The second thing, oh, Paul says it as much. I want, I want you to see that in our text. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. But for the very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. He says, the sinners out there will see what God has done in here and be able to respond. Oftentimes, God chooses the most unlikely people because it is through them that they will see God. Secondly, I believe we hesitate to do a lot of things because we limit God to our own perceived skills. We put God in a box of who we are and what we can actually do. We consider our small experience or training as the tool bag from which the God who created the cosmos can actually act and move in the world. And so when we're faced with some decision, a lot of times we go, I don't know if I can do that. I'm not asking you if you can do it, can God do it through you, right? to expand our imagination here. Imagine, think about Moses when he approaches the burning bush and God tells him, I need you to go to Pharaoh. Of course he feels inadequate to do that. He's like, uh, but I can't speak well, God. And God says, Moses, pick up the stick and see what I can do. Imagine what Paul is probably thinking. How could you send me into that place? If everything that I've done, I'm more skilled and qualified to do this, to interpret scripture or to teach these things. How can I go reach people that actually will be afraid of me? But yet, thankfully, Paul submits to the creative God that can do all things. And it is through his life that the world begins to see God. And thirdly, what we see in Paul's story very quickly at the beginning is that we often disqualify ourselves based on our own narratives or cultural narratives of what we're told it's supposed to look like. Let me give you an example. I do a lot of small group leader training. And oftentimes when I am training potential leaders, who of which I have likely or the church has likely identified that they have giftings for leadership, but never mind that, when they get in the room and they're asked to step through this idea, a lot of times what I hear is, but I don't have all the answers. I'm not asking you to have all the answers. You've been identified because we think that you are loving and that you can speak truth and you could be a representative of God's grace in their life. But I don't have all of the leadership, whatever. That's not what we're asking. We're asking if you will be available so that God might do something unexpected through you in the world. Oftentimes he calls the most unexpected, but oftentimes we limit him to what we can do and we don't see what he can do through us. 
So how is it that Paul comes from enemy of Christ to Christ's agent of salvation? How does Paul make this comeback story possible? How does he get past the past? Well, radical forgiveness inspires radical obedience. Paul's experience, Paul experiences an encounter with the resurrected Jesus that changes everything. The mercy of a crucified Jesus is matchless because it demands nothing in return except for response. Here's what I want you to hear today, church. A lot of times we struggle to see what God can do because all of our lives, we have heard things about Jesus. We've seen Jesus from afar. We've gone to a Bible study with Jesus, but that is not the same as an encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ. Because if we have been knocked off our horse by the Jesus who has defeated death itself, that changes everything. It reorients what we even believe that is possible. It changes how we see the world around us. And I just wanna challenge the church. If you're in this place, the same Jesus who has lived, who has given his life up, who has walked out of the grave is here to meet you today. And in response to that, that changes how we surrender to this very truth. We'll lay down everything for that. And we see that in Paul. That's the beginning of his comeback story. Paul realizes the truth that he was persecuting not just the Christians. What does Jesus say? You've been persecuting me. And he has to respond to that truth. And he realizes that Jesus gives him a new life, even especially with his nasty past. But here's the deal about this forgiveness. It's not just, hey, it's okay, Paul. Just don't do it again anymore. That's not what we see with Paul in the story. This forgiveness in Paul's life brings new life. Paul's previous life is a thing of the past. There is a demarcation here that separates what was old and what was new. Paul talks about it over and over and over again. That is why the name changed from Saul to Paul. But his previous life is also not erased. It's not like it didn't happen. It actually becomes the first chapter of the salvific journey. Let me break this down a little bit for you. See, what happens with Paul when he encounters the resurrected Jesus is the experience of forgiveness that's not just this pithy, it's okay, Paul, you can still pass go and collect $200. Just don't mess up anymore. That's not the story of Paul's forgiveness. The story of Paul's forgiveness is a restoration to a new life that actually takes the spirit of the living God and puts it in him so that what is new is not like what was before anymore. Because if you just give Paul a little bit of forgiveness and say, go figure out how to spread my word to all the people that hate you, he ain't gonna make it very far. But if the spirit of the living God brings a new life in Paul, now we're talking about something else as Paul is sent into the world. The forgiveness that Christ offers you is not some generic, hey, everyone's forgiven, just go and sin no more. The forgiveness that Christ offers you is I want you to be fully who I created you to be. So much so that I'm gonna give it to you. 
I'm gonna pour my life into you so that what was before is no longer and what is now is me living in you. That's the redemptive forgiveness that is offered to Paul and is offered to us. Secondly, the past is the chapter before Jesus restores, but it does not restrict what is to come. See, Paul's past is not a limitation on who he is becoming. I need you to hear that. His past is not a limitation on who he's becoming. Past failures may limit job opportunities, may have consequences with people if you've harmed someone, but pasts don't limit who God's creating you to be. So here's an example. My brother, who I've shared about, he hopefully will be able to transition out of prison soon. And when he comes out, there will be consequences where he may not have certain job opportunities for him, right? Things may be hard. There may be reconciling that needs to happen, but Jesus has moved in his life. He has come alive to who Jesus is and his past is not limiting who he becomes in Christ in the future. Do you hear me, church? Are you with me? Your past does not limit what Christ is doing in your very life. You are not somehow canceled from being fully human or from loving God or receiving his love or from participating in the mission of God. As a matter of fact, your past and the redemption actually might pre-qualify you for the mission in which Jesus is calling you to. He might take your very scars that show healing and send you into a place where there's open wounds of the same effect. Paul's past is not erased, but instead becomes the very avenue through which the world can see the glory of God. Let me put it this way. I've spent... Um, my calling trying to do everything that I can to serve young people. Early on in ministry, I thought I was called to be a youth director. And then I spent time with decent youth directors and I thought, I'm not very good at this. So let me find something else to do. But, um, but I've tried to spend my time, anytime I can go to camp, anytime I can say yes to resource or be a part of uh, what's happening to young people. But can you imagine that if I looked back at my teenage years and I said, man, during my teenage years, I was going after the party, I was going after the girls, I was living the life that is this, I didn't care about Jesus and I'm just not qualified now to talk to young people. And yet that's what we do when we say, I can't do that. You don't know where I've been. Why would I be called to go to that very thing? And we limit exactly what God is calling us to do. Paul teaches over and over again that the old way of life is gone and the new is here. He says things like forgetting what is behind. I press on to take hold of that which has taken hold of me. But he also has texts like ours where he reminds people of the past. He's not bound to it. He is not insecure about it, but he reminds people of the goodness of Jesus to rescue him from the very worst place so that he might go to others' worst place. It's why he writes this in 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. We are but jars of clay that show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 
What if church, we are but jars of clay holding the treasure in our imperfect containers that might give way to show the light of Jesus Christ? Jesus calls us past our past, but sometimes he uses that journey to be propelled into ministry. Okay, I can get past my past, but what about getting past your past? I don't really love your past. How do I deal with that, right? This is cancel culture. This is where it rubber meets the road. For the sake of cancel culture, what do we do with other people's failings? What do we do with those people we love that we're following and something happens? Well, first we started out with our own stories because we should see others in the light of the redemption that's happened in our life. So the last few weeks, I've been trying to start there. What is the gospel? How have we been called to Jesus' redemption? How is the, the, uh, the, the land at the foot of the cross level? I want us to see that so that we start there before we start to kind of... Um, prescribe what's out in front of us. We got to remember that seated in every heart is the potential to come alive in God again. As image bearers, we start with the place of going, that person that cut me off this morning, they are made in the image of God and seated on their heart is the ability to be linked up with the God who created them again. When often what our reaction is, is, oh, you moron, like you tried to hurt me when we cut someone off earlier because we were in a hurry and we just didn't worry about our excuses, but we're just mad at this person and we immediately identify them as a terrible person and spawn of Satan, right? Not you, just me. Our first place is to start with image bears to remember that God has brought us from this old life to this new life and that he is still calling all of those around us to that very same truth. The scenarios that have plagued my friend Adam that we've worked on this series together is what do we do with public leaders, with theologians, with pastors, with politicians, with artists that create beautiful things in the world, that bring good into the world, but also might be plagued with moral and sinful character or decisions. That's a little bit harder. By the way, every week I've had a two-hour sermon that I've tried to squeeze into 30 minutes. You're welcome. But there's a lot that's been left on the cutting floor. And even today, there are no easy answers here, okay? If you're hoping I was gonna give you a formula on how to engage in this thing, I'm not. I'm probably gonna give you more questions. But maybe some helpful true statements can encourage or probably challenge us a little bit when we think about cancel culture. The first thing I wanna say out loud is that God uses broken and sinful, even corrupt and evil people to bring good in the world. We have to start there. We were reflecting with our friends that are serving in Ukraine earlier, Chris and Christy, that God didn't wake up this morning really anxious because he forgot and lost something and he doesn't know where his keys are and he's going, what? how did this happen? Now, we also wake up this morning going, God, how are you letting this happen? And I wanna also say he's not anxious about those prayers either, okay? He's secure enough for us to offer those prayers. But God can bring good from the worst scenarios and circumstances. He doesn't create them just so he has an opportunity to be good, 
but out of the ashes, he can bring good into the world. And so even people that were heroes of mine that have helped me to understand the Christian faith that I've come to know that have had these serious failings, I can also rest in the integrity that God used them to teach me about God. Because if the qualifier for God to use someone to teach me about him was for them to be perfect, I'd be looking for a teacher for a long time, right? And so God can use sinful and broken and evil, even evil in the world to bring about good. Secondly, when it comes to cancel culture, I believe we often elevate people to a throne they shouldn't occupy. And I think that's why cancel culture has become such a need for us because it's actually a response to the fact that we've raised people up to a pedestal they never should have been on in the first place. They never should have been up there in our hearts. And let me step in it a little more if I haven't yet. Your politician is not helping you to follow Jesus more closely but we elevate people to these existential places emotionally and spiritually, even if we won't say it out loud so that they become our salvation. And when they don't work out the way that we think that they should, our whole world crumbles. And if you found yourself in that place of anxiety and desperation, it's likely that we raised ideologies or people to a place that they shouldn't have been. And I believe that there's some grace in that being deconstructed a little bit in our very hearts. Third, I believe we will also compartmentalize our faith from ethics and choose to follow people that suits us instead of acknowledging the messiness of that very choice. So let me put it another way. I think that we will cancel someone on the other side of partisan aisles and look away from corruption that's right in front of us. We cancel things of certain ideologies and expressions and people that look different than us. We cancel all of these things because that's the easiest response. And a lot of times we will overlook the very things that are right in front of us. That is a temptation that is in us all. You might not cancel someone for corruption or moral deceitfulness, and I don't think we should, but we can hold them accountable by not following them, and especially not following them as our savior. That's the level of accountability. Because early on, we talked about how it's antithetical to cancel, so let's not join the social media mob and do everything we can to make so-and-so's life miserable, but let's also make the responsible Christian decision to say, I'm not gonna follow that person with my life. Fourth, I think we spend more time seeing what is wrong instead of what God can potentially do in others. That we are really good at diagnosing problems, but we've lost our kingdom imagination to see what God can do in the midst of it. What would it look like for us instead of joining in cancel culture, we might join a culture that is looking for redemption. One of the things I realized in this series is as I was looking for stories of comeback, of redemption, I could find a mile long list of people that have been canceled and have failed. And it was really hard to see stories of people that faced this kind of thing and came back 
from failure. Why? Because that's not good news. Like we, it doesn't get the clicks and shares on social media. We don't share those stories. We revel in tearing down. We don't revel in seeing the redemption side of it. What if we could be the very leaven in the bread that will say, I see potential here in others and in brokenness. And five, we like justice when we are the oppressed but it is hard for us to see it when we have actually participated in the oppressing. I don't wanna over-explain that. I want that to sit with us today. We can see injustice when we are feeling the effects of it, but we in the church are quick to dismiss when other people say, I'm hurting here. This is hard for me. And sometimes the resolutions that they're suggesting are not what we think is right, but we dismiss people in that very light. Friends, it's occurred to me that we could do this for 20 weeks, but we've got to keep moving. There's much here and so much that we deal with. I hope you'll join us in the podcast this week at seven o'clock on Tuesday nights. But let me leave you with just a few points. My prayer is this that first we would engage in the world while thinking and acting Christianly, that we would have the mind of Christ. Because listen, the solution that we face right now when it comes to politics, when it comes to worldviews, when it comes to how do we deal with Russia, how do we deal with uh, the pandemic, there are not binary good answer and no answer. They are layered and nuanced. And we too often have settled into these two options and said, that one's wrong and I'm right. And what we in the church need to do is pursue the mind of Christ so that we can engage in the messiness that is our world right now. So that we can engage in the ethical and hard decisions. When it comes to abortion, when it comes to racism, when it comes to all of these things, there are not simple yes and no answers. but Christ is with us in the midst of it. And if we have the mind of Christ, we as the church can engage in this way that we not only survive, but we become a story of redemption in the middle of it. Secondly, my prayer is that we would be optimists about what God has done and can do in our lives and in the lives of others. That we would have that holy imagination to see what can be. Because if we are citizens of heaven, we now live in light of heaven and we can see what's possible that's around us. Third, that we would not see shame as a sport, but lament and weep when harm and evil persists. Paul says, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but we're fighting against principalities and evil. And so give us the heart that mourns and weeps with the prophet Jeremiah that says, that's not how it should be. It should be different should be more than that. And finally, that we would actually be God's agents of reconciliation in the world. That instead of raising the flag of there's a problem and I don't wanna have anything to do with it, that we would actually engage with it to say, I think Jesus and the gospel has something to say about this. I wanna go right into the middle of it. I wanna be an agent of reconciliation. Why? Because we are jars of clay and God's light is eager to burst forth from your life and from mine. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let all God's people say, amen.